Two weeks ago, the archbishop, a couple of archbishops in England, issued a decree. They stated that it was high time that this, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, it was high time that the Protestant churches gather together and repent for the disunity that they caused 500 years ago in the Reformation season. Well, after we look at one of our reformers tonight, I will ask at the end of this session if you think that that call for repentance is merited. I want you to pause with me now as we look into the life of William Tyndale, and the title of this evening's message is, The Bible is Worth Suffering, Life and Death Are Worth It. I want you to imagine a world without the Bible in your own language. I want you to imagine this morning me opening the word, the book of Philippians, and what if I were to preach that sermon this morning in Latin? What if I were to preach that sermon in the Latin language of which I hardly know myself, but I did my best and ad-libbed where I did, and it all sounded good, and hopefully you would go home better for having heard a message from a man in Latin. That was the stance of the church long ago. I want you to imagine the darkness that you would live in and the the mystery that God would be because you didn't have the Bible in your own language. You knew of this God. You might have even heard of Jesus Christ. But what exactly was it that he did? What did he teach? What miracles did he perform? What about these parables? What about this Paul character and these 13 letters that he wrote? What about this book of Revelation that told us about things to come, even in a veiled and discreet way? What if you had no access to that? I want you to imagine the Christianity that you would be living right now and the mystery and the darkness and the unlearnedness that you would have about God. Some of the basic things that I promise you, you and I take for granted to this day. There was a time, and it was 500 years ago, when that was the norm. And when I say the norm, it was 99% of all humanity lived in that kind of shrouded, veiled mystery when it came to the things of God. One of the true giants of the Christian faith is a man named William Tyndale. He was an Englishman born in 1494, we think, give or take a couple of years. His birth is not succinctly documented. He was born in Gloucester, England, which was a commercial center for textiles and clothing and manufacturers of such. He was educated in Oxford way back in the 1500s, the 14th, the 16th century. He knew eight languages in that day. Can you imagine that? He knew his native English, of course. He knew French. He knew Italian and Spanish and German. He knew Latin, he learned Greek, and he mastered Hebrew. Eight languages. Eight languages. It sure seems apparent that God had a task for this William Tyndale, and he gifted William with the ability to pick up languages. I have tried to pick up languages. Had two years of French in high school, had two years of Greek, and two years of Hebrew in seminary, and I slugged it out every day. It never got easy for me. This man mastered eight, mastered eight languages with the most raw and bare-bones tools of his day. 
So God chose a man with a great gift, a great mind, a great natural tendency towards grasping languages because God needed a man that could handle the languages to do something that was critical for English speakers for the rest of history, for the rest of history, not just in the 1500s. Oxford, the institution that he was educated at, was very hostile to the concept of the Bible being in English, very hostile against that concept. They had condemned a man named John Wycliffe. We know Wycliffe, don't we? We have Wycliffe Bible translators over in Dallas. That institution is named after John Wycliffe, who lived in the 1400s. And uh, in 1488, Wycliffe was uh, condemned and cited for the act of heresy because John Wycliffe provided the Englishman the Bible. Now, this is 100 years or so before William Tyndale. Uh, I got my date wrong, but it was about 100 years before William Tyndale. But Wycliffe's Bible was not like Tyndale's Bible. Wycliffe's Bible was a translation into English from Latin, from the Latin Vulgate. And I want you to know a translation from a translation means that a lot gets lost in the translation. (laughs) You really, really need, I don't care what kind of document you're working on, the Constitution of the United States or whatever, you want to translate it from the original or you're going to get some nuances and you're going to get some things put in there that aren't there. And so Wycliffe's Bible was all that people could get because there was not a man on the continent of Europe at the time that knew Greek or Hebrew well enough to translate the Bible. So they had to go from the Latin Vulgate that Jerome wrote centuries before. Tyndall came to an Oxford environment that heartily rejected the idea of Scripture in English. This is the Oxford that Tyndall was educated in. Oxford was known for his, its ability to equip men and women, men back then that day, let me correct myself, to handle the language and to do many, many great things with the English language. They, here's how that one way in which they trained their students. They would take a, a simple sentence such as this, the letter that I received from you made me very glad. They would assign that sentence to their students and tell them, you need to rewrite that sentence in a minimum of 150 ways. (laughs) And so students would go and take that little bitty English sentence and hammer away at their desk, figuring out 150 different ways to communicate the same thing. That's the kind of tutelage that William Tyndale grew up under in Oxford. And all the while, this Oxford is hostile to the concept of the Bible in English, yet they're training William Tyndale to be a master in the English language. And that is significant for us today, as I will show you in a moment. Here's what Tyndall wrote about Oxford. In the university, they have ordained that no man shall look into the Scripture until he be nursed in heathen learning eight or nine years and armed with false principles with which he is clean shut out of the heart of the understanding of Scripture in the Bible. They would not allow their students to open the Bible and read it. He says for eight or nine years before they've been indoctrinated. And the indoctrination was with the Latin Vulgate and the teachings of the Catholic Church. At this time, England was a Catholic nation. The Church of England did not yet, was not yet established. So, this Oxford also was the namesake for a constitution that was written in 1408. 
1408, the Constitution of Oxford forbade the translation of any part of Scripture into English by any man of his own authority. No way, you will not do this. Violators were to be subject to the pain of punishment as a heretic. And that was ultimately being burned at the stake after much torture beforehand. There were five core arguments that the, that the Constitution of Oxford laid down. Number one, they said that the Bible needed to remain in the Latin language because Latin was a sacred language and it was sacrilegious to read the scriptures in any other language than that. So they put a high premium on a man's language. Number two, they said that the common man cannot have the Bible or he will become his own interpreter. And, and really what they said is he will become his own priest. Well, we as Protestants do believe in the doctrine of the priesthood of the believer. We believe that through Jesus Christ, who is our chief high priest, we have direct access to God. We don't go through another human, another man to have access to God for anything, for petitions, for, for forgiveness, or anything. And this constitution of Oxford feared that a man would have the Bible in his own language and become his own interpreter and, in fact, become his own priest. And they could not have that. There was a legitimate concern, I think, number three, is that they were fearful that in such openness to translation, there could be a lot of erroneous translations. So I think that's a one that I'll side with them on and say we need to make sure that the people that are translating the Bible are qualified, yes, we don't just want anybody to say, well, here's what it means to me. I, I think there's wisdom there in that one, so I'll grant them that one. But I cannot support them on number four. They believed that the Latin had a spiritual and supernatural effect on mankind, whether he understood it or knew what was going on in a mass or not. They put Latin at that high of a level. I want us to be respectful tonight as we talk about the Catholic Church. But even to this day, the Latin mass is a controversial issue. And there are still churches to this day that do the Latin Mass. And there are people that go to these Latin Masses that have no clue what in the world is being said. How in the world can a man or a woman relate to God when they have no clue what's being said in a service that is designed to be worshiping that one God? It does not happen by mystery. It does not happen by Latin. The fifth point is... They believed that only the priests of the Catholic Church were ordained by God to handle the Bible and its meaning and its application. And so there was a select group of men that were responsible for and qualified to say, Thus saith the Lord in Latineth, and this is how you are to take it and apply it and live it out. And I want you to know that Martin Luther and other reformers exposed some hypocrisy and some sordid intentions, some evil gain that was creeping into the Catholic Church as a result of this stronghold on controlling the language of the Scriptures. So Tyndall began to come under fire in this kind of environment, under this Oxford Constitution. The Constitution had a, a provision in it that said the, the Bible could be translated into English, but it had to be made, a request had to be made, an authorization had to be granted by the church, the Holy Roman Catholic Church. And on the right circumstances, with the right person, such permission could be granted. Well, William Tyndall, I want you to know, he was not a rebel without a cause. 
William Tyndall was a respectful Christian man. He was a Catholic priest himself. He was ordained into the ministry into the Catholic Church, something that would be stripped of him right before his, his uh, martyrdom. But he also, just like Martin Luther, when Martin Luther discovered that paragraph in Romans 3, 16 to 20, uh, 21 to 26, uh, William Tyndall had his experience in reading Luther's writings as well as looking at the whole corpus of the Apostle Paul's writings. And in that, William Tyndall became a Reformed theologian, meaning that he believed in Scripture alone is the authority. He believed in Christ alone through faith alone by grace alone for the glory of God alone this was William Tyndall's theology that was Martin Luther's theology that is what the Reformation is built on those five alones and so as he encountered the Bible and understood the Greek because he was reading into the Greek he became Christian and he began to have a passion for the common man to be able to experience God and to understand and know God the way he had come to know him. There's a key event that happened during this time. I want you to know William Tyndall wrote his Greek New Testament, the first version, in 1526. Six years before that, a man named Erasmus out of Germany published something that had never existed before in a, publi in a published book. It is the Greek New Testament. This little book right here was first published and mass-produced in 1520 in Europe. And it is this little book, once it got into the hands of Martin Luther and William Tyndale, that things really started to fire in the Reformation. Luther published a German Greek New Testament two years after he got his hands on this. <laughs> two years. I can't imagine. Okay? He took this from Greek to German that quick, and it was a pure translation that has very little minor tweakings from then even to this day. Uh, four years after that, six years after this was published, William Tyndale published his English New Testament, and it was therefore the very first New Testament ever that was taken from Greek, the original, to English. Remember, Wycliffe's went from Latin to English. Actually, it went from Greek to Latin to English, and much was lost in that translation. It was very clunky. It was a gigantic book. It took an ox cart to carry it around. It was, it was uh, I think they said it was 18 inches tall. I mean, it was a beast of a book, and it was the Old and the New Testament. And it was very hard to read. It was not written in good English. William Tyndall came along, and his Greek New Testament literally was this size. It, they didn't mock, mimic that, but... His was about a six-inch book by a four-inch book that could fit in the pocket of any Englishman, and he could carry it with him wherever he went. And that happened in 1526 as a result of Erasmus publishing a Greek New Testament for the first time in Europe. It's funny, Erasmus was a very devout Catholic, a very well and highly regarded man in the Catholic Church. He and Luther had duels all the time over bondage of the will versus freedom of the will. You can read those two men's writings to this day. They are brilliant masterpieces. You better really put your thinking cap on as you read them, though. But he, he did something in publishing this that enabled the Reformation to flourish, unbeknownst to him as he did this publishing work. It is said, <clears throat> <clears throat> 
It is said that the Erasmus Greek New Testament set Europe ablaze. It was the spark that sent the Reformation into orbit, and the fuel was that of the men of Martin Luther and William Tyndall. They put fuel to this spark, and they said, if we can get that translation into our own language, the kingdom of Christ will grow. These men did not do this for professional profit. They truly did it for the glory of Jesus Christ and the growth of his church. William Tyndall, let me tell you how he came about this. And man, I am leaving so much out about Tyndall's life. It is a fascinating life. I wish I recommend this biography to everybody. This is an incredible read. It's a little bit technical when it gets to translation, but maybe guys like me like a little bit of that. But there are fascinating details of his life here in this book. Tyndall was employed as a governor to a family uh, in England. Basically, a governor was a, a tutor and an overseer of children in their education. He was educated in Oxford himself. He was perfect for this. He had the gift of teaching. He had the gift of Latin, which all of the, the books that kids at that time are reading are in Latin, and he could, he could really teach them uh, through those means. He could teach them as well English and, and the language that he, his native people spoke in. So he was highly qualified for that. Anne and John Walsh were the host family. They lived in a little place called Little Sodbury Manor. <laughs> And he lived in their attic. And this attic was the place where incredible things were accomplished for the kingdom of Christ. It's at the top of the house. It looked out over the hills. It was a rustic. The the descriptions of it are beautiful. It had oak ceilings and oak beams that came all the way down to the floor. I, I would have given anything to have a study like that today, probably by the way it was described. And it's in that room, just like Martin Luther over in Germany was in a hideout in, in the top of a, of, a, of a house trying to translate his German New Testament that uh, William Tyndall was employed by God to start doing something that you and I feel the benefits of to this very day in immeasurable ways. He had light duties with the Walsh family. Uh, the tutoring work with the children was easy work. And they allowed for him to have a lot of free time because they really employed him so that he could be employed by God to do his translation work. And so there he sat in their home, in their upper room, looking out onto the hills, translating from Greek to English. And no one hardly in the world knew what he was up to. But the world was going to be rocked by his work. He was ambitious and aggressive in his work. He hustled to write this thing it seems that it took him about 18 months once he got his hands on erasmus's new testament 18 months to 20 months to get this first translation out just the new testament remember he had the perfect employment setting to support him in this endeavor he had the perfect solitude that was needed, and he had the perfect infrastructure. He was in an area in England where booksellers were everywhere, and that's how he got his hands on Erasmus's New Testament and all other kinds of books that could aid him in translating. He was reading Latin, yes. He had Luther's German New Testament, they say for sure, and he's, since he knows German, he's reading all of these and collaborating with all of these to come down to a right translation in English. It was the ideal setting. 
and it seems like the Lord equipping him with his linguistic skills and putting him in this setting, it's like the Lord set him up to deliver what the Lord commissioned him to do. The hand of God is upon this man for sure. Now, as I said a minute ago, the Wycliffe Bible was available in 1488. It was copied down through the years by a group of people known as the Lollards. That was the Catholic Church's assignment to them. That literally means tongue waggers. It's not a very complimentary title to give to them. So they're called the Lollards. They're carrying on John Wycliffe's work. It was an English translation from the Latin Vulgate. And as I said, it was a gigantic book with very wooden and awkward English. And it was also off in many places because the translation was of a translation from an original manuscript or original uh, Greek version. Tyndall was determined to not repeat some of those mistakes and to get a more pure translation and a more readable translation for his English brothers and sisters. He was not lazy in his translation work. And I want you to know laziness is, is uh, sometimes abounds in translation work. Uh, when difficult phrases and words are bumped up against, uh, lazy translators shift over into paraphrasing. William Tyndall, if you read in his journals, absolutely wanted nothing to do with paraphrasing and inflecting into the text what he thought it would mean or should mean. He's diligent. He was desperate to get an accurate and faithful translation. And he was desperate to get a readable translation. Because I want you to know, you can translate some things into language that's practically unreadable. What in the world does that mean? It's clunky. It doesn't even flow well. William Tyndall, with his linguistic abilities and his passion for accuracy, wrote the most amazing translation of the New Testament. I said this morning, maybe you caught this, I think I said this, this ESV Bible, there are people that have taken the ESV and they've married it over against the Tyndale version in 1534. He revised his in 1534, I'll get to that. This ESV version is practically, they say, 76% unchanged from what William Tyndale wrote 500 years ago. And the, the 24%, the yeah, that's 24. The 24%, just minor nuances, taking out these and thous and shouts and <laughs> that you see in, in the older English. So this is a pure translation. Tyndall wrote so clearly and so faithfully that it could not be improved upon practically. I like to compare it to uh, the, the model 1894 Winchester. I'm an old gun guy. In the 1894 lever-action Winchester, they say is the perfect gun. They have not been able to improve upon it uh, from 1894 to present. So even today, other than the safety mechanism when the gun laws started kicking in, other than that, all the mechanism in the lever-action 3030 is unchanged because it was perfect. Well, that's a great analogy for Tyndall's New Testament 500 years ago. It's largely unchanged. You read phrases like, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. William Tyndall wrote that from the Greek, and it's not been approved upon. Let there be light, and there was light. These phrases, salt and light, knock and it will be opened. Ask and you, knock and you, let's see, ask, help me. Ask and it will be 
given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be opened. All of these big time phrases, the salt and light phrase, all of these in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, no one has said, you know what, we could word that better. No one. Just minor tweaks here and there, but largely what Tyndall wrote 500 years ago still stands to this very day. So he was determined, he was not lazy, he was aggressive, he knew the days were urgent, he knew that perhaps hostility to come, and he needed to hustle to get this translation done while there was a window of opportunity to get it done within. He wrestled with the languages and their grammar and their syntax and the context in which they were written, and he strived to arrive at a faithful but readable New Testament for English people. This tenacity and devotion did for England what Martin Luther's did for Germany. A lot of people say that the German language to this day owes much of its existence to Martin Luther and that he was really the father of the modern German language. Well, you can say that about William Tyndall as well. His writings have influenced our culture through and through. At the time that he did his translation, English was still in formation mode. It was very brutish, very rough and hacky. (laughs) It wasn't polished. And Tyndall's Bible, because it was read by so many, synchronized the English language into what we speak to this day. It is amazing the impact that he had on language. And Luther, as I said, did the same thing with German. Uh, Tyndall made the Bible in the language people spoke, not as the scholars wrote because this is how God inspired the Greek New Testament. What you need to know about this book, the original New Testament manuscripts that God had the Apostle Paul and John and others write in, he used a version of Greek that's called Koine Greek. That means common Greek. There were a couple of variations of Greek in that time. He could have done it in the high-class uh, high classical Greek, but God chose men who spoke Koine or common Greek to inspire to write the New Testament. And he took William Tyndall, uh, 1,500 years later in some cases, to write in the common English from the common Greek so that the common man could read the Bible and comprehend it. We just see the hand, the providential hand of God in all of this. Uh, um, On the other side of Tyndall's Bible... Uh, the language became well-defined and refined. And to this day, they say that William Tyndall is quoted. Now, he's, it's the Bible. But William Tyndall's English in the Bible is quoted more than William Shakespeare is. And he's quoted more and more by people than Shakespeare is. And people don't even know that they're quoting William Tyndall in the Bible oftentimes. It's become that common And that has translated even across the ocean into America and all other speaking, English-speaking places in the globe, on the globe. As he translated, he also preached. I said a minute ago he was ordained as a priest in the Catholic Church, and he held forth in a pulpit uh, in, in the areas where he lived. And as he preached, people would leave his sermons and they would slander him for what came out of his mouth in those sermons. He realized that the root of this slander and persecution was due to the ignorance of the other priests who were slandering him. 
And he didn't mean that as an insult. He meant that as a statement of fact, a sad statement of fact. They were biblically illiterate. Many could not even read the Latin Bible that they were preaching from. They only knew a few words and a few phrases in Latin. They would launch with a Latin text, spout it out from rote memory, and then proceed to speak whatever they wanted to speak and inflect into that text what they thought would be a good message for the day. They did not exposit the text and say, here's what the Word of God says. It was really, here's what I think you should hear today about said topic. That was the preaching of the day. In some ways, we've migrated back to that. And that's a great tragedy. But those with any slight knowledge of Latin would gloss over the text. They would allegorize the text and they would twist the text into some of the teachings and principles that the church back in Rome wanted espoused and proclaimed from the pulpits. And so church tradition began to creep into the church in many, many distinct ways. Their Latin scriptures differed very significantly from the Greek originals. There was a, a many, many flaws in them. And, and so when Tyndale opens his Greek New Testament and preaches in English, he has many opponents rising up and slandering him and wanting to stop the trouble that he is causing. In 1551, years later, there was a dispute amongst the Catholic Church leadership and their monks in England. Listen to this. This is just horrifying. And This is 1551. Tyndall died in 1544 or 6. I've got that written here in a moment. So six or so years after Tyndall's died, there was a, an eruption in the Church of England about the monks and what they were teaching and how they were holding forth in all the ceremonies. Nine, they surveyed all these monks in a certain geographic region. I don't know what the population total was, but nine did not know how many commandments there were in Moses' law. How many are there? Ten. <laughs> Thirty-three did not know where they appeared in the Bible. Most people, most of the monks, guessed that it was in the book of Matthew. Okay? 168 could not recite for you the Ten Commandments. 39 did not know where the Lord's Prayer was in the Bible. 34 did not know who said the Lord's Prayer. The Lord? 10 were unable to recite it themselves. So many could recite it, but they didn't know where it was, and they didn't know who even uttered that prayer. This mindless ministry is shameful. Shameful. In such circumstances, with that kind of scene in the church in England, how in the world could the common Englishman have a chance to know God? His priests didn't understand the Latin, couldn't read it. He certainly couldn't understand Latin. Many of those priests didn't care that they didn't know Latin. And Tyndale looks across the landscape and sees all of this and says, something's got to be done, and I think I'm the man to do it. This is boldness to take on this task. This is blood, sweat, and tears in the privacy of his study, and it's blood, sweat, and tears in the public square. He got hammered in the study. 
with difficult work, and he got hammered in the public with enemies and opponents. In this setting, Tyndall and a scholar partner that he had got into a great debate. Remember I told you he stayed at John and Ann Walsh's house. Well, they would have dinner parties, and theologians would come over for dinner. And one night, this scholar that refuted everything that Tyndall said about the Greek New Testament and the need to have it in English said in anger, it is better that we be without God's law than to be without the Pope's law. That was a common thought process in the Catholic Church in those days. I think there are, there are uh, uh, faithful Catholics today that don't believe that, but I can tell you that there are Catholics today that still think like this. The Pope's law, the laws of the church supersede the laws of God. To this Tyndall replied, I defy the Pope and all his laws. If God spare my life, ere many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more about the Scripture than thou dost. He wanted the boy that plowed in the fields to have his English Bible so that he could know more of the Scriptures than these Latin folks that were ignorant to the language to begin with. And so the work was on and the pressure began to build on Tyndale and after he had expressed his desire to the uh, Constitution of Oxford to have permission to translate, and they said no, he was under a magnifying glass, and he was suspicious. He was suspected by many to be up to no good. And so at some point there, Tyndall determined that he needed to flee England and head over to the continent, and he went right into Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, I'm sorry, Cologne, Germany. Uh, we are unaware of any occasion where Luther and Tyndall met each other. Probably did not, but they knew common people. They lived at the same time together, but the way they were running, they never crossed paths other than in reading each other's works. He went to Germany first, and there he was in Cologne. Uh, we know that he read Luther aggressively. He seems to have used a lot of Luther in his translation of the New Testament in other writings. He, he rode the back of other faithful men as he read widely, faithful theologians of that time. Uh, I'll tell you that I ride on the backs of other faithful men as well. Last Sunday night, I'm in here talking to you from the, the life of Charles Simeon. This morning, I read from you from John Patton. There are faithful men in the history of the church that we can get on their backs and experience the theology so long as it's from the Bible that they experienced, and we can grow quicker than if we're left to our own devices. We need to be careful about who we read, but we need to read faithful men like this, and we will grow in our faith quicker, I believe. Well, I'm going to tell you when William Tyndale believed that, and that's why he read Luther so faithfully. He was translating the book of Matthew at one point in Cologne. He got to chapter 22, verse 12, and he stopped because the city authorities were outside the house that he and his partner were in translating, and they were ready to arrest him and to confiscate all of his books and all of his works. They were ushered out the back. They hit the River Rhine, and they went to Worms where they picked up the translation work and continued on. At one point, he had to flee from there to Antwerp, in the Netherlands, where he remained through the rest of his translation work. And through these years, he finally came to finish his translation 
of the New Testament. I want to read for you his introduction to this work. Here he is. I have here translated, brethren and sisters most dear and tenderly beloved in Christ, the New Testament for your spiritual edifying, consolation, and solace, exhorting instantly and beseeching those that are better seen in the tongues than I, and that I have higher gifts of grace to interpret the sense of the Scriptures and meaning of the Spirit than I, to consider and ponder my labor and that with the spirit of meekness. And if they perceive in any places that I have not attained the very sense of the tongue or meaning of the Scripture or have not given the right English word, that they put to their hands, they put their hands to amend it, remembering that so is their duty to do. For we have not received the gifts of God for ourselves only or for the, to hide them, but for to bestow them unto the honoring of God in Christ and edifying of the congregation which is the body of Christ. Said another way, I humbly give you this New Testament translation. I'm limited in my abilities. This was my first pass at it. I've had no other English helps because there is none. And if you find a better way to translate, if you see that I've misrepresented the Scriptures, change it. (laughs) Not, how dare you, this is copyrighted, don't alter my work, none of that. Change it. Because what we have from God in this Greek, now in English, is a gift from God, not to be hidden, not to be hoarded to ourselves, but to be freely given away to all. So join me in this endeavor to translate the Scriptures. That's humility. That gives you insight into this man's heart and why he went about this endeavor. This was not a profiteering deal. He didn't say, you know what, there's a market for English Bibles. And there's no one in that market. I could have a monopoly if I hustle and take care of business and get through this window before anybody else. I'll corner the market and everybody will have to buy my work. That is not William Tyndall at all. At all. It was the glory of Christ for which he translated this Bible. He had no help from English versions to check against. He was the lone trailblazer and he humbly acknowledged that if it could be better... Do so be it, but hey, at least it's a start. In 1534, he revised his 1526 version. He made about a hundred changes, which is not very many after eight years, and they were minor. And that that version, the 1534 version, is what has bled over into our Bibles to this very day. What Tyndall wrote has stood the test of time for 500 years. And I want you to know that at this point in the story, the plowboy has his Bible. And that's hard to come by. For you see, Tyndall came from this textile clothing manufacturing region in England. And so what he would do is he would print in Antwerp the pages of his Bible. He would not bind them there. He would slip them in between reams of cloth, ship them across the channel. They would be picked up in the textile mills and taken to the binders. That's how he ushered his New Testament into England. His first publication was 3,000 copies. We think there's five of those that still exist to this day. As this Bible hit the streets, the Pope and the bishops and the King of England hated it. 
hated it. That's not strong enough language. So much so that they ordered the burning of Tyndale's books and especially his New Testaments. Burning. And this shocked Tyndale. And he said, if you'll burn the Bible, you'll burn Jesus Christ. Uh, William Tunstall wrote, listen to this, page 190. He wrote this of Luther in these New Testaments. Many children of iniquity, maintainers of Luther's sect, blinded through extreme wickedness, wandering away from the truth of the Catholic faith, have craftily translated the New Testament into our English tongue, intermeddling therewith many heretical articles and erroneous opinions, seducing the common people, attempting by their wicked and perverse interpretations to profane the majesty of Scripture in the Latin which hitherto had remained undefiled and craftily to abuse the most holy word of God and the true sense of the same. Of this translation, there are many books printed, some with glosses and some without, containing in the English tongue that pestiferous and pernicious poison dispersed in our diocese of London. (laughs) Pestiferous, I don't even know what that means. But I think it's pretty strong language. So this is railed against the Bishop of London. The Bishop of London weighs in with this. Uh, Here it is to be remembered that at this present time, 1528, William Tyndale had newly translated and imprinted the New Testament in English. And the Bishop of London, not pleased with the translation thereof, debated with himself how he might compass and devise to destroy that false and erroneous translation. And so it happened that one Augustine Packington, a mercer and merchant of London and of a great honesty, the same time was in Antwerp. This is where Tyndall was translating where the bishop then was, and this Packington was a man that highly favored William Tyndall, but to the bishop utterly showed himself to the contrary. The bishop, desirous to have his purpose brought to pass, communed of the New Testaments and how gladly he would buy them. Packington then, hearing that he wished for this, said to the bishop, My lord, if it be your pleasure, I can in this matter do more, I dare say, than most of the merchants of England that are here. For I know the Dutch men and strangers that have brought them of Tyndall and have them here to sell, so that if it be your lordship's pleasure to pay for them, I will then assure you to have every book of them. So this man says, I know Tyndall. You want the books. I can, I'm a great merchant. I can help you out here. I can get you all the Tyndall Bibles you want. He's an honest man, but he's a gullible man, isn't he? The bishop, thinking that he had God by the toe, when indeed he had by the devil's toe, he had the devil by the fist, said, Gentle Master Packington, do your diligence and get them, and with all my heart I will pay for them whatsoever they cost you, for the books are erroneous and knots, nothings, and I intend surely to destroy them all and to burn them at Paul's cross. Augustine Packington came to William Tyndall and said, William, I know thou art a poor man and hast a heap of New Testaments and books by thee for the, for the which thou hast both endangered thy friends and begged thyself. And I have now gotten thee a merchant which with ready money shall dispatch thee of all that thou hast 
if you think it's so profitable for yourself. Who is the merchant? Tyndale asked. The Bishop of London, said Packington. Oh, that is because he will burn them, said Tyndale. Yea, Mary, quoth Packington. I am the gladder, said Tyndale, for these two benefits shall come there too. I shall get money of him for these books to bring myself out of debt, and the whole world shall cry out upon the burning of God's word, and the overplus of the money that shall remain to me shall make me more studious to correct the said New Testament. And so newly to imprint the same one once again. And I trust the second will be much better like you than ever did the first. And so forward went the bargain. And the bishop had the books. Packington had the thanks. And Tyndall had the money. Afterward, when more, than, when more New Testaments were printed, they came thick and threefold into England. The Bishop of London, hearing that still there were many more New Testaments come from abroad, sent for Augustine Packington and said to him, Sir, how cometh this, that there are so many New Testaments abroad, and you promised and assured me that you had bought all of them? Then said Packington, I promise you that I brought all that then was to be had, but I perceive they have made more since, and it will never be better. As long as they have the letters and stamps. Therefore, it is best for you, Lordship, to buy the stamps too. And then you are sure. And the bishop smiled at him and said, Well, Packington, well. And so ended the matter. He said, You buy the stamps so that they can't ship them over. And you can buy the books. Of the, that's your only court recourse because these books are coming no matter what. What a story. And there's more. I, I, I wish I could give you more. There's more incredible stories like that. In this history. So the king uh, was also appalled at this, and he appealed to Tyndall through a man named Stephen Vaughn to return to England. He asked Tyndall to return to England peacefully to reason this issue out and to come to a good compromise. And here's what Tyndall said back through Stephen Vaughn He said, This I will come home to England if the king will allow the Bible to be translated and given into the hands of the common man, woman, and child. If that be, I will allow the king to do with me as he thinks best. He knew the king was hostile towards him. But if he could get an agreement to where the common man could have the Bible in English, Tyndall said, you can do with me whatever you want. Does that sound like an echo from this morning? To live as Christ and to die is gain. He had a great enemy. I'll go quickly through this. Thomas More was a vile, vile human being, wicked to the core. Uh, he was not always Tyndall's enemy. He had said some very complimentary things about Tyndall previously. But once Tyndall translated this New Testament, everything changed. More said, it is good that the Bible should be translated to English by some good Catholic and well-learned man, and then the bishop should undertake to buy copies and break up the Bible and dole it out in small portions to trusted men, and then when they die to reclaim them. So you hear this control freak-ishness. Let's get the Bible translated by a good qualified man, a Catholic man. We'll hand it out through the bishops, but when they die, we're going to reel them back in because we do not want the common person to get the Bible in English. It's only for the priesthood. That was more. 
Uh, Moore and Tyndall got into writing debates. These were verbal sword fights via letter. And, and you total up all the communications between the two. Moore wrote more than 750,000 words against William Tyndall. Tyndall, in response, wrote 80,000 words. Moore was just foaming at the mouth, breathing fire and running rampant all over England and the continent, trying to disparage William Tyndall in his work. And here's the bottom line. Here is the crux of the matter and why there was such animosity over the Bible being translated by Tyndall. There were, from the Catholic Church, four words in Tyndall's New Testament that were disputed. Four words. If we can overcome these four words, I think the Catholic Church would have blessed this. Here they are. The first word is the Greek presbyteros. The Catholic Church translated this priest. The Protestants, William Tyndall and Martin Luther, translated that elder, pastor, overseer, shepherd. The Catholic Church did not like the authority of the priest challenged. And so they went after that. The second word was ecclesia. Ecclesia. In English, that means gathering or assembly or congregation. The Catholic Church wanted that to be translated church with a capital C, as in Rome. And there was authority around that word. The third word was agape. Love. The Catholic Church translated that charity, not love charity the fourth word is metanoeo very important word that word in the, in the, the latin vulgate and in the catholic vernacular meant to do penance to do penance in english and in german and in greek as it was inspired it means repent and so now you start to see these debates over priest church, charity, and penance. And these are means that the Catholic Church used to control people and to make a whole lot of money. Because what happened in penance? You're paying money for your sins to the church and you might be paying money for those of your loved ones that are in purgatory, i.e. my reference this morning. And this was how St. Peter's Basilica was built on the backs of peasants paying penance. There were a couple of other issues that Tyndall had acrimony over. One was marriage amongst the, 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 uh, the clericals, the, the uh, clergy. Uh, Martin Luther married, and that was highly controversial, and they went after him for that. William Tyndall never married, but he promoted marriage amongst the clergy. He sees nothing in the Bible that would prohibit marriage amongst priests. In fact, Peter, the very first priest, had a mother-in-law whose house they were in in Mark chapter 1, verse 25. And yet the Catholic Church somehow came up with this concept of, of uh, what do we call it? Celibacy amongst the clergy. And Luther and Tyndall didn't necessarily go after it, but they didn't translate in line with it. 
And yes, this other issue of purgatory. Uh, if purgatory went away, so would most of the church's power and income. And that was a really big-time dogfight for the rest of Tyndall's days. I told you that in 1534, he translated, uh, he, he gave a, a second revision to his New Testament. And then we're introduced to the end of his life in a, a bounty hunter named Henry Phillips. The Bishop of London seems to be the one that employed Henry Phillips to go to the continent, to go into the Netherlands, into Antwerp, and to hunt down William Tyndall and secure him once and for all. Tyndall lived at that time with Thomas Poins in Antwerp. He was working fanatically at his Old Testament translation. He had now devoted himself to learn Hebrew. From 1526 to 1534, he went after Hebrew and mastered that language, and he translated about two-thirds of the Old Testament from Hebrew into English before he was martyred. Phillips, this bounty hunter, was employed by John Stokesley, the Catholic Bishop of London. Phillips penetrated the safety of Tyndall's anonymity in Antwerp and became a confidant, a, a confidant with Thomas Poyens, his host, and also became an acquaintance with Tyndall, and they unsuspectingly brought him in closer to their circle. And this Phillips betrayed Tyndall, much like Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. There's a story of him sending Tyndall down an alleyway and walking behind him and pointing to two security guards waiting at the other end of the alleyway. This is him. That's the Judas kiss, isn't it? Well, he was arrested and he was imprisoned for a year and five months in a castle in the Netherlands. His writings and his possessions, all that he had back at the Poins home, were sold to pay for his incarceration and his meals. His translating activities were stopped, and he never got to translate the Psalms, any of the prophets, the book of Job, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, all of that he didn't get to. He did get the, the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and uh, we are still influenced by those today. Tyndall's imprisonment looked like Paul's. Tyndall wrote this. Well, no, I'll, I'll read you something Tyndall wrote here in a minute. Such was the power of, of his doctrine and the sincerity of his life that during the time of his imprisonment, one year and five months, it is said that he converted his keeper and his keeper's daughter and others in his keeper's household. This sounds just like Paul, doesn't it? Philippian jailer. Tyndall walked that same line. Tyndall was tried by a commission of 17 men who cycled through his cell during this year and a half time period. There was one representative from the Catholic Church in Rome. There were three theologians, four lawyers, nine men of a variety of, of ta uh, occupations such as monks and friars and laymen from the church. And through it all, they walked away finding him guilty of heresy for translating the scriptures into English. One man wrote three books against William Tyndall as a result of his interviews with him. While in prison, William Tyndall asked this, I believe, right worshipful, that you are not unaware of what may have been determined concerning me. Wherefore, I beg your lordship, and that by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary, commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine which he has, a warmer cap, for I suffer greatly from cold in the head, and I'm, I am afflicted by perpetual catarrh, which is a respiratory problem, which is much increased in this cell. A warmer coat also, 
for this which I have is very thin. A piece of cloth, too, to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt, if he will be good enough to send it. I have also with him uh, leggings of thicker cloth to put on above. He also has warmer nightcaps. And I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have the Hebrew Bible, a Hebrew grammar, and a Hebrew dictionary that I may pass the time in that study. In return, may you obtain what you most desire so that it only be for the salvation of your soul. But if any other decision has been taken concerning me to be carried out before winter, I will be patient, abiding the will of God to the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit, I pray, might ever direct your heart. Amen. W. Tendalus. Sounds just like Paul, doesn't it? Second Timothy, send me the parchments and the writings and bring me a good cloak. Sounds just like Paul. Tyndall walked in the path and followed the example and imitated Paul like I called us this morning to be in imitators of Paul. He was found guilty of heresy in August of 1536 and was condemned to death on October the 6th of 1536. Here's John Fox's account, and I'll finish. At last, after much reasoning, when no reason would serve, although he deserved no death, he was condemned by virtue of the emperor's decree and upon the same brought forth to the place of execution, where there they tied him to the stake and then strangled first by the hangman and afterwards with fire consumed him in the morning town of Vilvorde, A.D. 1536. Crying thus at the stake with a fervent zeal and a loud voice, Tyndall said his last words, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. And then he died and then he was burned. And what's amazing is three years later, Henry VIII commissioned Coverdale, a man by the name of Coverdale, to write the Bible from Greek into English once and for all. Three years later. And Coverdale used Tyndall's work and filled in the gaps in the Old Testament that Tyndall never got to. And so Tyndall's translations did pass through and did get to the people once and for all. What an amazing providence God had for Tyndall to do this and to suffer this and to die for this only for three years later another man to come and complete the task. So I say to you, the, the bishops of England have called for the Protestants to repent of the disunity that they caused 500 years ago what say you to this? There's no place for repentance. If we are going to be disunified because we don't agree on whether or not we should have the Bible in our language, we're going to need to agree to have disunity. And that is not something to repent of. And so we, here we sit, 500 years later. This is still controversial, y'all. This is still controversial. And we still face threats from time to time over our faith and our access to the Word of God and how we would live out our faith and practice our faith according to the Bible that we read. 
And so it's good for us to hear how we got here 500 years ago. It's good for us to thank God for this deliverance. But it's also time for us to take heed that some of us may need to be William Tyndall's in our day to lesser degrees or more and be willing to stand faithfully for the faith once delivered to all the saints. So that tonight is our look back into one other man in the Reformation. Where we'll go next time, I know not yet. But I hope you've enjoyed and I hope you're inspired to understand that God has taken care of us very well. And one of those ways was through the work of William Tyndall. Father, we thank you for this saint. Fallen that he was, he was not a perfect man in any way, shape, or form. Although he does seem to be a right and true Christian man from all accounts. He's, he's cherished and re revered throughout all. He doesn't seem to have any blind spots, though we know he did. Father, he had a gaze that was singular in focus. And that was for the word of Christ to be delivered once and all to all who spoke the English language. Lord, we look at the British Empire, and the colonies that she established around the globe, including the American colonies. And we, we see today how providentially you were moving to provide us with these words of our faith that are found in your scriptures. And for that, we say to you, thank you so much and we pray this in the name of our Christ who carried Tyndall through thick and thin who Tyndall said to live is Christ and to die is gain we pray this through that Christ's name amen